This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh, so let me give a, a brief introduction to the uh, quadlibital session. Um, as you may know, in the Middle Ages, it was a common uh, activity to have a, a, what was called a quadlibital disputation. And uh, this was an academic exercise that involved some peril, actually, for the participants, especially for the professor. Typically, there was a magister, so a senior professor, you might say, who was assigned to uh, be the principal figure in the disputation. And the other members of the university were invited to participate, and questions could be about anything from anyone. And the, the master was obliged to give a kind of exposition in response to the question, which meant that if you had an adversary in the university who wanted to really go after you, uh, you were on the hot seat to sort of publicly respond. And when uh, in, the, in the medieval University of Paris, as you may know, uh, there was a great deal of um, very heated uh, division, even to the point of physical violence, uh, between the, I mean, it's not a joke, actually. As you, as you may know, as you may know, um, the, um, the king of France, uh, I believe it was King Louis IX, uh, had to, so I don't know what kind of exercise of prudence this was, but the, the master, the master just before Aquinas's year of defending his dissertation, the, the medieval equivalent of defending your dissertation involved giving an inaugural lecture. The inaugural lecture of the Dominican who was uh, getting his degree the year before Aquinas, there was such controversy over the mendicant presence in the university that the king of France, King Louis, had to send a detachment of archers to protect the Dominican so that the thing could go forward without physical violence. Um, such was the ferment at the University of Paris. So there, there was some real peril um, in the quad. We, we, we do not expect any peril like that here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's back when, you know, being a Thomist could really, it required, you know, courage, uh, infused courage, probably. Uh, so th the point is, this is a, a, an academic exercise to encourage um, real uh, exchange, uh, and I hope that you all will participate in the same uh, spirit of friendly, uh, friendly questions, but uh, nonetheless a, a chance also for you to have something to say. Now, I don't want to encourage anyone to give a, a speech, you know, so please do keep your comments limited, but it's an opportunity to to make an intervention, state a position, ask for clarification. Maybe we can start with a few questions directed to Dr. Cosmo since he just ended the last session. I know there were a few left for that, and then we'll go from there. So basically, the, the floor is open, but I think I, uh, Dr. Gorman, I know, was anxious to ask a question. Do you have a question, Dr. Gorman? Do you want to start with that? So I was thinking, the, so here's an argument that it can't be your full argument because as it stands, it's invalid. Um, so, no, but most arguments are, right? You have to keep adding premises, and that's where it gets interesting. So, so it's like, like we're obliged to pursue the peace of the city, right? And the peace of the city is the end of civic virtue. Therefore, we should cultivate civic virtue, 
Now, it doesn't actually follow unless civic virtue is the only thing that leads us towards the peace of the city. If something else did, for example, in some infused virtue, then we could cultivate that instead. So, But I think it's part of your view, this started be becoming clear to me towards the end, that you think that there's a lot of things that humans ought to do which, to put it sort of mildly, aren't promoted by infused virtues. And I, occasionally I thought you were actually suggesting that they were incompatible with infused virtues, although that's a much, much stronger position. But anyway, I just want to hear you talk more about what is this class of actions that, we, that Christians ought to do, but that Christian virtue doesn't promote? And, and how can it be that a merely acquired pagan virtue makes something that would otherwise not be a good thing to do become a good thing? Oh, yeah, I may have changed the topic, and if so, I apologize. Apparently, there's a class. So here's an example of something uh, that if you did it only out of infused, you can't do it at only out of infused virtue, killing the enemy. Like, if you just did it out of infused virtue, that would be terrible. That would be wicked. So, But it is obligatory sometimes. So what takes this otherwise evil action and makes it good? And the answer is an acquired virtue. So to me, this is a paradoxical. No, when I say paradoxical, I don't mean stupid. I just mean I'm surprised at this. Some, there's something yeah. that if, if, if I was only acting out of the grace of the Holy Spirit, I couldn't do this. But if I add in something that Aristotle would recognize, then all of a sudden it's virtuous. No, so... So that it's correct that that is a different question than the first one, and and it's also not not my view, but but I'll take the I'll take the first one right, and and that is to say that it is the case that much that is done exclusively in conformity to infused virtue will redound to the good of the city, but it will do so indirectly. All right. So when Thomas treats general or legal justice, which is the the has as its object the common good, as its immediate object, he, he's going along, and then the question emerges: given that given that legal justice is such that action in accord with it will ensure that all of one's fellows are treated well. Why should there be particular justice, where particular justice is precisely that virtue by which we are ordered immediately to another individual and that individual's good? And what and and his his argument, this is um, I, it may even it may be on the on the handout. His argument is that there is there's a difference between what is done indirectly and what is done directly and that there are things important to to tend to relative to that that individual good and and i think fundamentally though the premise of your question is is one in which nature and grace stand opposed as though acquired virtue were somehow not christian which i think is incompatible with Thomas's vision of nature itself as both always anticipating grace and as being a kind of gratia insofar as it's given by God. And so action in accord with acquired virtue, which your question equates with 
Aristotle's kind of virtue. I would say that kind of virtue belongs as much to the Christian and even more perfectly so than his, than his does. So, yeah, okay, so. That's the first ver- uh, question. But, but why? No, I understand. Why is it the case that there's a range of actions in human life that we're obliged to do, but that can't, that we can't be pointed towards those uh, actions by infused virtue? Okay, so what's so, wrong? I so mean, to put things. it in a silly way, what's wrong with infused virtue that it can't get me to kill the guy who's trying to, you know, rape my wife and my daughters? Infused virtue cannot inspire me to kill that guy. So I need to rely on acquired virtue. What's wrong with infused virtue? I mean, that's a silly way of putting it. But what is it about infused virtue that makes it incapable of getting me to use lethal force to defend my family. So, okay, so two things. One, I'm a little concerned that you are imagining, as Thomas does not, the virtues of whatever sort as being delineated by material acts, all right? That killing is is somehow, I mean, and this gets, this gets tricky because of, I think, at least where I am on, on Thomas's political philosophy and and not being supportive necessarily of crusades but but I, w- I would grant that it it might well be the case in something like a, a Joan of Arc and example that that maybe we should see certain cases of of killing as being the immediate operation of infused courage okay and I gave I gave an example rooted in Thomas's treatment of the the prohibition of priests from participating in in uh, in war as as soldiers as an example and it's it's very important again and he stresses and I'm stressing it's not that something that is sinful becomes not sinful in virtue of of being done by one kind of virtue rather than another so the, so point one is the distinction between acts understood uh, materially and apart from actually being specified by circumstance object and and so on and acts understood in the way that Thomas understands them where they they have ends and objects that constitute them as the particular acts that they are and that gets to the second part of the 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 question an infused an infused virtue is is a habit or form that is subjected or or abiding as it were in some dimension of the human person and given it it's being the particular form that it is necessarily what it does is to lead to action that immediately has beatitude in view with respect to that particular aim so it's no it's no failing of infused virtue that it only leads to the kind of formal action that is constitutive of what it is as infused virtue. All right? Yeah, but the issue of the question is what, what falls into that. Well, right. the question is what falls into that. In other words, yeah. I mean, okay, so let's just, I mean, it's sort of trivially true that, that infused virtues only lead to the kinds of actions that infused virtues lead to. We can all agree on that. But the question is why are there, how does it happen that there's, so 
what is it about what is let's talk more about this this class of actions delineated any way you want to i did, i don't think i was understanding that materially but maybe i was this class of actions which uh can't be motivated by an infused virtue but they're still good to do we really need to do them so we need some other virtue other than infused virtue okay. can i jump in here and and, and ask maybe the other panelists to op opine in some measure like is it is this a true premise that there are some acts that uh, the infused virtue could not uh, direct you to, like killing the enemy, that the acquired virtue directs you to? No. <laughs> but but I, I will say, though, that I think that uh, there are kind of fundamentally different interpretive theories at work. Um, and so... Um, I I think that um, do you guys mind if I like describe different interpretive theories? No, do you mind if go, I do that? Go ahead. I I just tr I'm trying to kind of no. I know. I know. I know. You're trying to kind of flesh out yeah. the the differences, right? And um, I think if you it's interesting if you um, if you look in the in the sentences, okay. Um, Aquinas has this this text where he seems to say um, that he he seems to distinguish the activities of the acquired and the infused virtues in the following way. Um, act in in the Christian right. So he seems to say the Christian can have both. Um, and here's the difference, right? Acts of acquired virtue are proportionate to man's natural fulfillment, right, and ordered to the good of the city. Acts of infused virtue are directly ordered to supernatural beatitude and proportionate to our participation in the divine life. And Aquinas seems to say in the sentences, right, this is not my Aquinas, right, but this is the Aquinas of the sentences as I read him, that um, when you're furthering the civic good, Right, you perform acts of infused virtue that are proportionate to the fulfillment of your created nature, and charity gives them a further extrinsic, not intrinsic, but I, I meant acquired. Yeah, okay. So you when you perform, perform these per acts of acquired virtue ordered to a civic good, right? Proportionate to a purely natural civic good, and Charity gives those acts, and he's very clear, extrinsic. Makes, charity makes them count, right? But they are not in themselves, right? And then in some areas of life, you do acts that are, in fact, proportionate to your participation in the divine life. And um, those, right, are, ch are ch pervaded with charity, intrinsically ordered, to, right? Now, I don't like that Aquinas. No offense, David, but <laughs> that that Aquinas sounds awfully Protestant to me. No offense, but but um, be, because because it's like it's like some of these acts are some of the acts that that the moral life consists in are really not Christian through and through, right? But but they they nonetheless count as Christian acts, and then in some areas of life we're like Christian through and through, and I don't think that that's consistent with the structure of virtue that Aquinas lays out. Because for me, the fundamental principle um, 
of Aquinas, and the thing that makes sense of everything is that grace transforms nature, right? And it, it transforms nature all the way down to our very, to the level of our very powers, right? And what is virtue? Virtue is a perfection of a power, right? And it enables a power to function at its ultimate, at its utmost, right? And when we have been transformed by grace, the utmost that our power is capable of is now something different, right? So for me, there's a it makes a huge difference what your ultimate end is, right? And so I think that depending on, depending on the read, um, you can come up with different accounts of, so for, for me, that I'm never acting at the ultimate of my power if I've merely performed an action proportionate to my natural good once grace has transformed my nature. Is this helping at all? Is this clarifying anything or not? Could, could I, I yeah, dovetail off please. that? Because I mean, that, I think that gets to the, the nub of things in a way and, and, in relate, and to, the, to the question because on my view and Aquinas' view, now on, my, on my view of Aquinas, in, in, in each of those actions, it is not by any means the case that infused virtue is inactive. Infused virtue in that moment operates precisely to command and refer this, this subordinate habit. Just in the same way that, that let's say you have, let's take the case of a, of a, of a skill you have maybe I don't know, a, a baseball playing skill, and then you have also a, a, a pitching skill or something like that. Um, your, your baseball playing skill, as it were, is active in your deployment of, of the pitching skill, but the two things are not identical to one another. Now, obviously, the fault with that analogy is that, in a sense, arguably, pitching comes packaged together with baseball, but not, not necessarily. And, and in this case, it's ironic because I, I see the, a view like the one Professor Knoebel is articulating as itself giving us an almost an Anabaptist kind of Thomas, so that in order to, in order to max out on, on in, in, in neglecting the good of, of nature and the idea that grace perfects nature, we don't become a different species, we remain we remain human beings, and we di distinguish between acquired and, and infused virtue. And I mean, to use a, a, in order to unite it all under the banner of charity. So let's, let's hear from Dr. Knoebel, and then uh, let's broaden that <laughs> the conversation. So, so two things. Um, one is that I um, now I forget the first comment that I was that I was waiting to make. Um, be that as it. What, what was the first thing you said? I, 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 got, I got called an Anabaptist, and then I just. <laughs> um, we were prepared for this, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Um, yeah. I. I. I forgot. I forgot the first. I was dying to make this point, and now I. I forgot the first point that I was going to make. Look. Revenge of John Howard Yoder. The. Look, it's it's not it's not the view. I mean, I don't understand how 
my view, it all separates grace and nature. It's not as like I, I get the infused virtues and I stop reasoning. I'm now reasoning in the light of faith, right? Assisted by faith, helped by faith. So it's not as if I just am like, it, 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 it almost seems in, in my, it, to me that you are di- kind of dichotomizing, well, reason, if reason's happening, we're acquired virtue. And if, in, if, if infused virtue's happening, then it's like, faith and so so yeah I don't I don't mean I don't mean to hold that at all there was a clarification that I wanted to make and it's now I was dying to make it it's now completely escaped my mind perhaps, so perhaps it'll come back to you yeah, but let's give brother Charles an opportunity to ask a question and then we'll uh, if it comes back to you we'll certainly hear uh, have an opportunity to hear from you thank you father Dominic um, thank you all this has been really a wonderful weekend uh, I'm wondering if I can actually try to seize upon the the, the point of difference between Drs. Knobel and Dr. DeCosimo. Um, and perhaps it's in, in the relation of the material object of the moral act um, as being the point of distinction between the acquire, act of acquired virtue and the act of uh, in, infused virtue. So we, it seems you both agree that um, the acquired virtues and the, and the infused moral virtues have a different formal object. Namely, one is as the good as supernatural good, and the acquired is as natural, the proportion of natural reason. And it seems that uh, Dr. DeCosimo is arguing that an act is only properly speaking of the infused moral virtue if its material object is something substantially supernatural. And that's, I mean, the interesting thing is in St. Thomas's text, the paradigmatic example of the infused virtue of courage is a materially uh, materially supernatural act, namely the confession of faith before, uh, before the tyrant. So it's not something like the Maximilian Kolbe martyrdom. Which is a, which is a giving up of one's life for for a, for a, for a na- the natural good of the man's family, but it's it's the it's maybe felicity or per- perpetua, which is before the Roman you know on account of confession of, of the Christian faith. Uh, whereas it seems that Doctor um, Knobel is proposing that the uh, infused moral virtue basically supernaturalizes any mater- any virtuous material object, um, such that the the cookie baking can in fact become a supernatural act. Uh, supernaturally ordered act because of the love with which it's done. And that seems to me to align more with like St. Therese's Little Way, for instance, where the key to charity, especially in religious life, is doing all kinds of materially very natural things, you know, cleaning the latrine and so forth, with tremendous love, uh, and thereby offering oneself, uniting oneself to the cross of Christ through that. Um, And so perhaps the way in which all this can be connected then in the context of the uh, the, the war, like this, that, that great uh, Medal of Honor example, um, is that the material object of that act is certainly for the natural good of, the, of, the, uh, of, the, of, of, of justice, of the common, really global common good in that context. Um, <coughs> but because if that, if that soldier was in a state of grace uh, and so was exer- exercising charity and the intensity of that charity, pr- because charity is the form of all the virtues, is pervading the, the very natural acts which he's performing there of, of, uh, of acquired just or acquired fortitude, it also takes on that supernatural end. And so to Dr. DeCosimo's point, um, for the Christian, every act, because he possesses sanctifying grace and because he ex- is exercising charity in the operative order, is encased with, uh, with, with, with a supernatural end, even while the material object of the act retains its proper natural dimension. I always get a little confused by the phrase material object. Um, I mean, Aquinas talks about material aspects, right? But... The matter about which. Yeah, the matter about which. Um, 
but I also would take issue with the description of martyrdom as being, I mean, Aquinas says that any person who dies while living out their Christian faith counts as a martyr. So I don't see why that excludes Maximilian Kolbe. Um, I don't think that disqualifies Maximilian Kolbe from being, uh, being a martyr. I think the question is, at all, I think the question is whether um, to, the, 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 really the interesting question is why does St. Thomas, in speaking of infused moral courage, the paradigmatic example being an act, of, uh, an act of martyrdom that is material, like it's about the faith and not about just giving up one's life in general with an order to, with an order to, chari- an, uh, with an order uh, to God because infused charity, in, infused gra- um, sanctifying grace, oh charity, God. and the infused moral virtues exist so in his soul. I, I think it may be worth distinguishing between talking about a, virtu- a virtue's chief act, that is, that in which we see its good most clearly displayed on the one hand, and the, the matter about which a virtue is concerned. So, so that courage of any cert- sort is concerned with enduring dangers of mortal danger in, in view of some good and, and enduring fear in relationship to that. And that, and, and I, I believe that all of us probably agree that that's the case and that that holds across strictly every sort of courage. But, but what's useful about thinking about, to, to go to what Angelo is saying, the limits of a given act and, and that we see the, the chief act of a given virtue is, is a display of it at its limits. And acquired courage at its limits looks like Sergeant Adams, whereas infused courage at its limits looks like Perpetua. And all I'm wanting to say is, you articulated very well and beautifully that for, for Adams, charity is, if, if let's suppose you were in a state of grace, charity is as much at work in a very real sense in him as it was in Perpetua. In Perpetua, its face is martyrdom. In Adams, its face is his undertaking to act immediately for the common good and loving the common good in part for its own sake, but more profoundly for for the sake of God. So charity is just as active. That's absolutely key to me. We've we've had um, 30 minutes go by and two questions. So I'd like to get more people, more people asking questions and, and move it around a little bit. Um, this is a question for uh, everyone uh, uh, in the panel, or I guess anyone <laughs> here. But uh, uh, it's inspired by um, something uh, d- uh, Professor Knobel said about um, how um, drawing from Aristotle, right? Where we don't we don't have the virtues by nature, but we have a, a sort of aptitude to, to obtain the acquired virtue. So I was wondering uh, if you could all speak about maybe th- uh, whether or to what extent we have a sort of aptitude to, uh, to receive the infused virtues and to what extent that sort of aptitude is limited by our wounded nature. The relationship between uh, nature and grace is does nature have an aptitude for Grace, and this is an old and difficult question. Um, grace is supra naturum, but it is not contra naturum. Now, for Clement of Alexandria, 
the philosophical quest reveals the insufficiency of philosophy. It is a pre preparation for the gospel. Uh, and so people will talk about the aporia of philosophy, that it prepares you. But that doesn't mean... So, yes, it's very strange. We seem to be able, and Aquinas talks about the ancients being uh, how they suffered from the limits of their perspective, so that Aristotle was able to articulate what eodaimonia would be, but then he's able also to articulate that obtaining it is impossible for a human as a human. It's more the life of a god. So that does say that we seem to have what Fergus Kerr would describe as immortal longings. But immortal longings on the natural level on its own has absolutely no idea in what that is attained. And when we try to go on beyond that, we sooner or later end up falling into some ancient heresy or another. So, I, so yeah, grace is secundum naturum, but it is supra naturum, and it's not contra naturum, but there's no way in which you can, you can look at nature all you want and you're never going to be able to arrive at the Trinity and the Incarnation and salvation and all the rest. But there is a weird affinity between the two. The first gift of nature is strangely according to the second gift of grace. But if you say more than that, you get into trouble. Can I prompt uh, Dr. Wood to say a word? Uh, you, you said something during a conversation that we were having uh, over a meal about how this debate that we've been having over infused virtue is related to the nature-grace debate, uh, which was, you know, in, in a certain one sense, the theme of your, of your paper. Could you just jump in and give your... your I can jump in, but I don't remember that? what I said at dinner last night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is this... Okay, yeah, good. Um, yeah, so... St. Thomas says, and this is one of the key facets of his understanding of the relationship between nature and grace, that nature and the acts of nature relate to grace and the acts of grace, like matter relates to form. And so there is an ordering in matter towards form but that ordering, and Aquinas is absolutely insistent on this, is purely passive. So orientation maybe would be a better word to describe it. And so what, of course, form does to matter is it actualizes the potential. And then St. Thomas says it also creates, or, or excuse me, it also actualizes when it just actualizes the being of the a desire for a complete perfection, which was in the matter as its orientation towards form, but there was no, without the form, there just was nothing, because pure potency doesn't exist. In this whole debate about the virtues and the acquired virtues and the infused virtues, that's one element that I feel is at times missing, is this element of 
the acquired virtues relating to the infused virtues in a way as matter relates to form. So they operate in their sphere, the acquired virtues do. But then when grace arrives, grace transforms. It actualizes a potential that was there. And it enables the motion, uh, the same motion that was leading the acquired virtues, or rather the same disposition to be more precise, that was having the acquired virtues tends to tend towards their natural action, now elevates them to their supernatural end. But sin kind of messes that up. It has a tendency to do that. Um, sin creates in nature a contrary tendency which detracts from, points us in the other direction from, the desire of nature, which was orienting us towards the good of natural virtue. So when a human being comes into this world, they don't come into this world on a level moral playing field. They come into this world with the potential for concupiscence, which is actualized as they grow in moral development and attain the use of their will. And so sometimes I feel, and I've, this is stuff I'm still very much thinking about, so I'm sure I'll transgress the limits that Father Sherwin warned us about and say <laughs> something awful, if not heretical. I'll try not to, though. Do my best. Sometimes I feel that when we discuss acquired virtue, even among Christians, we have this idea that you know either we're doing infused virtue and that's really great or we're doing acquired virtue and that's good and we can still kind of do that and we can just focus on that and it's okay and it's pretty you know we can do these this whole realm of neutral natural things but i don't think aquinas thinks that uh, along with many of the great spiritual writers they describe the spiritual life as an inclined plane you're either moving up or you're moving down you're never standing still in a kind of purely natural homeostasis. So why is that? Concupiscence is the answer. Either supernatural charity is propelling us upward to sanctify and supernaturalize. Uh, 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 Professor Knobel uh, quoted St. Jose Maria on peeling the potatoes, just to peel them, or peeling the potatoes to sanctify oneself. But you know the trouble with peeling potatoes is? It's really tedious. And uh, I have a big family. We'd appeal a lot of potatoes. <laughs> and if you don't have charity supernaturalizing your potato peeling, you kind of start to grumble. You get it gets kind of annoying. Maybe you get grouchy if you have to peel too many potatoes. And I think that that's what happens. That we either have, in, in the real life, in the real world, where we're wounded by sin. Sure, there's a tendency in nature for virtue, but uh, this contrary tendency of concupiscence is drawing us downwards. So either we're supernaturalizing these actions, and that could be minimally, a sort of virtual intention. Hey, I said my morning offering this morning. Hopefully we think about Jesus again during the day after we say the morning offering, though I certainly have those days where it's like, okay, Lord, here's my morning offering. Wait, it's the end of the day. What happened? I don't know. That would be like a bare minimum of, of a virtual intention. Or the best thing the saints call us to is an actual intention where in every single moment we're thinking, Lord Jesus, I am doing this for you. Because if we don't have any intention to supernaturalize, 
Then concupiscence is going to start to make these things tedious. We're going to get grouchy. The venial sins start creeping in, and we start slipping down the incline plane. I would push that even one step further, that if our intention is to supernaturalize is less than we are capable of, we start slipping, even if it's there. Like you said your morning offering, but you could be at this moment doing it with greater intensity. You're, you're detracting from it. To your, to your point, or to your question, I mean, I think Father Sherwin answered it very well. I mean, I think the only, the, I mean, people always raise the kind of twofold end debate in this, in these contexts. I mean, I, I think there are some, and I think that sometimes we focus on our differences to the exclusion of the things that we agree on. And I think that um, everybody agrees that our aptitude, if you will, for grace is not the aptitude that we have for acquired virtue, right? But that, that we are by nature, uh, re- we, by, we do by nature have a purely passive receptivity to it. Um, and I think everybody also agrees that if we were able to achieve complete Aristotelian f- virtue, it would not exhaust desire. We would still want something more, right? It would still, it would still point beyond us um, to something that we are, you know, we would live on in desire without hope, like Aristotle in Limbo in Dante's Inferno, right? Dr. Kosan, can you give us 15 seconds? Everybody is for supernaturalizing, but the difference is what that actually means and whether it takes seriously Thomas's vision of human action, which really matters if you take seriously the work of a Dominican as hearing confession and helping form souls. It doesn't, doesn't help to wave one's hand and talk about supernaturalizing something without attending to the particularities of this or that action and what makes it what it what it is. Okay, Zach's got a question, then we're going to go back into the corner over here. Thank you all. Um, I really was struck by what Dr. Wood said about this like matter and form relationship, um, and then also kind of what you just said, Dr. DeCosimo, because um, it seems to me that I mean the form like gives like a ratio to something, and so. I mean, could it be the case that it, um, that the virtues, even like acquired virtues, if we want to distinguish them according to their ends, kind of um, take on a new and more realized character with the inclusion of grace and charity? I'm thinking especially like, I don't know if your example with like warfare and stuff, I mean, um, is it the case that the granting that World War II was addressed war, which I'm not sure I would normally, but granting that. Um, the the particulars, I think, about how you wage war and, and what the just war accompany, accompanies, even within a, a just cause, I think it does require grace to, to understand that well, even as it relates to just the protection of the state. Like, I, you know, obviously we'd all agree here that that bombing Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima is horrifically evil and wrong. But I think it's because you have a clear Christian metaphysical vision that is pervading all of your particular moral objects so that the, the, the object now first kind of with a matter uh, character, 
now has a more formalized ratio, and you can, yeah, act according to that. Um, go ahead. I mean, I, I think the place to see the intersection of this metaphor of form and matter is is not so much relation in relationship to grace or charity as form and acquired virtues as matter, but as as to charity as form and the matter about which that is the good and the good and matters to do with sensible pleasure the good and that's where we see it and i think the grace that the difference that grace makes for acquired virtue i think is is twofold one is in the healing of wounded nature so that the the human who ha who is possessed of, of grace and and who has the acquired virtues has them at their limit and with perfection which includes loving the triune god also as the end of of this of this created nature that's one perfection the other perfection and this is where there's i think probably some agreement but difference on the details is that there is something i i resist because of my understanding of thomas's theory of human action the idea that the acquired virtues themselves change or something like that thanks to grace but i think there there are hints in passages that let us imagine something like when they are used this way this is most convenient this is what they were sort of made for and you could almost think about like the difference between a a dog roaming the streets in the wild and a dog that has its place in a family. It's, it's the same dog, but there's something fitting and beautiful about and right about it finding its place in this way. In a similar way, the acquired virtues are the same virtues, but when they're put to use by charity and the infused virtues, they find their true home. This was the use they were always intended for, as it were. Okay, so this is actually something, then I remember the point I wanted to make before, but this, this is actually a place where Dr. DeCosimo and I, I think, are in agreement. Um, people have tried to uh, make the case that, like, the infused virtues form the acquired, and they're this kind of co- and it's, it's really, it's, I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't think that happens. I don't think you think that happens. It's a mess, right? If you, I mean, talk about needing to work through the details, right? Um, but where where we disagree, I think, is in in you you see a space in the Christian moral life where acquired virtue with this a, a space for acquired virtue that charity gives a direction to, but really is acquired virtue ordered to the ends of acquired virtue, and a space. And so this brings me to the to the to the thing I wanted to mention before, right? If we're going to hold that charity that that um, charity and the Christian virtues order and direct the, the, the acquired virtues, then I think there's, there's this wrinkle that you, have to, that you have to worry about, right? Which is, it's going to have to be the case that your act of acquired virtue is not just being ordered by charity, right? But your act of acquired virtue is somehow being ordered by, your, by infused, but your act of acquired courage is somehow being ordered by infused courage, which operating by itself wouldn't do some of the things that acquired courage does, right? So 
those, does that make sense? Right? Because if the claim is that the infused virtue, charity and the infused virtues direct the, the acts of the acquired virtues ordered to a natural end, and they're different, right? Then you have infused courage, which would maybe be requiring martyrdom in this instance, somehow directing acquired courage, which is requiring something else. I just don't know how that's supposed to work. Like, I just don't see it. This, I mean, this is just a, I'm not attacking you. I'm just saying this is a question I have, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, quickly to respond to that, I think it's worth, and in my view on this specific matter is evolving somewhat. I mean, it does seem like Thomas himself seems to say that have this idea of infused courage somehow mediating acquired courage. But so we have that and we have to figure that out. An alternative is to think that infused prudence, infused justice and charity, which all have the relevant c character of being general virtues in the sense of having command and reference as proper to them, that those could be the means by which by which this happened. Or you could just say that every act ought to be an act of infused virtue. Well, well, Sherwin has something to say. And something else. Yeah, I, being the old man on this panel, um, I, just two things come to mind as generally. Um, one is a the reason that these questions have been perennial questions among students of Aquinas is that Aquinas doesn't ask the questions and therefore doesn't answer the questions that we would like him to have asked and answered. So then the challenge, there's the historical challenge and then there's the contemporary theological challenge. The historical challenge is just trying to understand Aquinas in his own time and context. And in his own time and context, his primary focus is trying to understand the scriptural heritage, to be faithful to the scriptures and to the fathers of the church. And so the best way to understand what he's about is he uses the tools of Aristotle, which had been recently rediscovered through excellent translations, and uh, trying to articulate biblical and patristic accounts of what? Well, as he grew, he more and more saw how our life is empowered and reoriented in Christ for the eternal kingdom. And therefore, our life should more and more, growing from beginning to more proficient to perfect, be animated by this loving trust in God, faith, hope, and charity, and the other empowerments that God gives us to live the requirements of the gospel. First, the minimal requirements, and then as we grow into the fullness of the Sermon on the Mount. That's his primary focus, and he tries to apply the tools of the psychology, philosophical psychology, and natural philosophy of Aristotle for biblical and patristic ends. And on how the infused and the inquired uh, cardinal virtues relate, he gives little indications that maybe he had a fuller understanding of it in his head than he shares, but textually he leaves us in the dark about a lot that we would like to know. And 
but what is this is where I'm going to draw it into being the old man. There, one thing that this historical moment that we find ourselves in that is so interesting to me is I and I think Brad will remember this. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Lewis will remember this. At Notre Dame, we were there long enough. We got the tail end of a kind of neo-Thomistic flowering, clerical neo-Thomistic flowering, that has shaped the way uh, philosophy was taught uh, at CUA, at Notre Dame, at most Catholic universities. And it's in, we're coming out of that. And the fact that we're having these discussions shows how far we've come out of it, but it also how it still is the ghost in the room. So what do I mean? At the University of Notre Dame, when it was still an all-men's college, theology was taught by the clergy, period, full stop. Philosophy was taught by laymen and some priests. So when Ralph McInerney starts teaching, he's teaching a version of Aquinas' moral theory, which is based on his commentaries on Aristotle, and selected passages from the Summa, interpreted as if they are articulating Aristotle's view of the life of cardinal virtue. And Ralph saw his vocation as preparing good citizens for the American polity. Now, he didn't deny that they were infused virtues, but that wasn't his domain. But notice what that does to the undergraduate who's studying ethics and preparing to be a good citizen. The cardinal virtues in that perspective are simply the cardinal virtues of Aristotle. Then he takes his theology classes, and in those theology classes, it's a Aquinas interpreted by another school, not the Dominican school, of uh, theology, and so it's, the it's faith, hope, and charity, and it's the virtues that the good citizen employs when he comes home from work and goes to be part of uh, Catholic action or the altar society or whatever he does at his parish in the evenings and on weekends. So the theological virtues become the virtues of after work and on the weekend. When you're doing charitable deeds, when you're uh, fulfilling your mass obligation, when you're giving 10% of your earnings to the church, whatever all that is, you're, her you're learning that from the clergy, and you're learning how to live faith, open charity. Uh, years ago, Ralph McInerney would organize week-long Thomistic Institutes at Notre Dame, and he would invite scholars of all the different generations, and we doctoral students were able to uh, sit and listen and learn. And... Uh, I had the great privilege of being able to organize a visit from uh, Father Pinkers, and Pinkers gave his talk, and a student of Rahner, someone who had got his doctorate with Rahner, uh, came up to me afterwards and said, Father Pinkers talked about infused cardinal virtues. Does Aquinas talk about infused cardinal virtues? And I said, yeah, he, he does. And he goes, wow, Rahner never mentioned them. So... It, the only other person I knew in philosophy was a young doctoral student of Fred Ferdoso who was writing on the infused cardinal virtues at that time. There was, little else was going on. 
So it's an, a remarkable tribute to the effects of this renewal. But the challenge for us, I think, is, the, is to keep in mind the twofold aspect, which is the one part is what, what is Aquinas really doing? What's his primary focus? And our primary focus is our configuration to Christ and his cross and learning to live from the, the graces and the gifts and the inspirations that he gives us on the way, uh, the Christian way, which is the Christian way of Christ, who is the, the way, the truth, and the life. How all the particulars work out is where we disagree. But I think on that fundamental vision, it's quite a period of renewal that we all agree on that, it seems to me. Yeah, and I would just add one thing in, in terms of context. I think that was a beautiful little summary that you gave, Father. Um, an, another interesting thing in point of context is that when Aquinas was writing, he was writing for an audience and out of a heritage in which the infused virtues were the only virtues that anybody, that the Christian tradition recognized, right? And so that was the, that was the paradigm, and it's almost as if we're now coming out of a period where it was the opposite for a, for a while. So I think that's, I think that's super, uh, but, and, and Father Sherwin is, is absolutely right. When I wrote my dissertation, a member of my committee told me that they were ad hoc and Aquinas was just trying to gesture to tradition by mentioning them. I knew people who had written 400 page dissertations on individual virtues who were not aware that Aquinas even mentioned infused moral virtues. Like it was just, it, nobody except for Gene Porter um, and, and Pink Harris were even talking about them. So, I'd like to ask a kind of a, this was a very helpful, I think, um, clarification and kind of crystallization of what we've been talking about and where the debate, you know, where the disagreements are and where what's important here. Can I just go to a very concrete example? And, and I mean, because actually there was an occasion where I was trying to teach some of this material. This is not my field. And I found myself kind of um, uh, stumbling as I was trying to give a concrete example. So this is an example. I'm thinking of something from an article that Father Sherwin wrote about Mal Matt Talbot uh, receiving a um, gift, an infused gift of, uh, of temperance uh, so that he can overcome alcoholism. Um, and. So if we take a more mundane example of, I mean, somebody, maybe a more quotidian example that would perhaps correspond to the experience of, of many Christians, uh, struggles with temperance, we could say, okay, let's make it about alcohol. But there's lots of other struggles with temperance that people have, um, where uh, someone undergoes a conversion and uh, now realizes, okay, the way I've been living is bad. I have to change that, and I need to start being temperate. Um, so they go to confess, the person goes to confession, the sin is forgiven, grace is infused. Uh, on Aquinas' account, there's going to be some infused moral virtues there. Um, and yet the person continues to experience a lot of difficulty and turmoil in uh, remaining temperate. So how do we understand the relationship between Aquinas? And, and we could think of several different configurations. You get somebody who's, who's actually already very temperate, um, but is maybe living in a totally pagan way, just referring it to health. We, we know lots of people like this who are going to eat lots of, I don't know, strange food just out of the sake of health and deny themselves pleasures because they have a new age idea of what the crystals are, how the crystals are going to resonate with the 
the organic grains that they're eating or something. You know, okay? So you have some strange temperance, and that person has a conversion, but it doesn't require the same kind of um, struggle to now uh, eat, you know, control appetites of eating. Um, then you have somebody who's, you know, maybe more an average citizen who, you know, but needs to start referring temperance. And then you have somebody who's a, an alcoholic who really needs serious correction to the appetites. And how are the infused and, and acquired virtues working there? Does somebody get infused virtue and then, and then uh, increase it by repeated activity? Or is it uh, – so well, I think those are questions that lots of people have. Let's just start with the minimum requirement. Council of Trent – De Fide defines that grace, the grace of conversion, sanctifying grace, gives us the power to live the minimum requirements of the gospel. That is, it gives us the power to live the Ten Commandments, to not violate them, and to live uh, the, the fundamental basic requirements of a life of charity. So we can, it empowers us not to uh, destructively eat or drink or engage in the other uh, concupiscible activities. That's the baseline. Then you come to the different theories as to what are the principles that the Lord gives us to live that. Um. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, we're going to give very different answers, I'm sure. Um, the the case of, of Matthew Talbot um, or, or instances like that, I think this is an interesting case where faith allows you to do what, what reason cannot, right? There's something, there's, there's a good that, that you cannot rationally see because of the way you've conducted your life, right? You cannot see abstaining as a good for any natural <laughs> reason, but, but your faith gives you a reason, and you can do things for the sake of God that you cannot do for, for, for the sake of, of natural goods. And I remember Kurt Pritzel, you, uh, we were talking about this one time, and he told this, this beautiful story of a, a couple, you know, the, the, the husband was an alcoholic, the wife was sick of it, he kept trying to get on the wagon and failing, and they went to counseling, the counselor said, well, you need to get a divorce, and, and this priest who Father Pritzel knew, you know, he, he met with the couple, and he said, get down on your knees and pray for God's help. And, but, but I think if you look at people who make changes and if you look at, at the AA literature, when people change, they throw themselves upon God's help. They don't rely on their own efforts. They rely on God. And so I see these cases, which I think it's kind of distorting to look at cases of like dramatic conversion and stuff like that. But I do think that there's, there's something here, which is that we are not to rely on our own understanding. If we want to make progress, we need to seek God's help. And so I see Matt Talbot's change and his con continuance in change and his, and his ultimate progress as growth and infused virtue, not sort of I made a change and then I kind of acquired some good habits through, through the use of my reason. I think he, this was a case where he was so flawed and so depraved that he needed God's help all the time to persist in, in what he was doing. So I think, I think we have to make some distinctions. And, and the person you described who is 
doing acts of temperance out of some weird distorted vision this is not the virt the acquired virtue of temperance this is a semblance of a virtue this person is not he may do happen to do the acts that are right to do but he's not doing it from a stable disposition or uh, as ordered to the to the common good so i mean that's that's one thing to note and so it, things are going to look different for that person on upon conversion okay but presume presume that it's uh, somebody who has virtue yeah, the real so, virtue just yeah, well, I mean, pagan acquired virtue yeah so so i think i think so i know that at least angela and i are in agreement on this that a virtue of any sort in one of the passions is not a kind of generalized capacity to be to to obey reason it's rather it's more determinate and, and focused and specified by that. That being said, a person with the acquired virtue of temperance has, has made their, their passion participates right reason in a, in a real way. And in so doing, when that person converts and receives infused temperance, it stands to reason that at the very least, that person is not going to be facing the kinds of temptations that any of these other people are. That's not to say, though, that that acquired virtue of temperance is somehow the same as, or, I mean, one way you can think of it is, in a way, you've beaten, <laughs> you, that's, that sensible appetite has been beaten and whipped and, and restrained and made about as obedient to right reason as it can be. And, and in a sense, it's re not that it could deserve or, or anticipate, but it is, it's ripe, as it were, to receive infused temperance. I do want to push back, though, slash have, have concerns about the aversion of relying on God that ends up being like that old joke about the Baptist and the flood. Yeah, I'm not, right? but I was never proposing that. I think God works with reason. You're using the reason to the best of your ability and asking God to help you reason better. So it's not just like, but God, you, come save me. I can't do this. Right, right? but you're also setting sure. yourself the sure. task totally of, of doing, okay. Totally agree. So I want to give him a chance to ask his question. Um, the question is primarily for Dr. DeCosimo, but I think others might want to chime in well um, this goes back to the specifically the Christian soldier right into it is that better so this is for the the Christian soldier um, scenario um, so let's assume for a moment that after his total act of heroism in battle um, survives the battle um, but gets word somehow that in a town nearby, there's a group of missionaries that are going to soon be leaving to go out to, s to take the gospel to uh, a group of people that have not heard it before. Um, at the same time, he also knows that the Nazis are headed to this town to wipe it out. So he goes through proper channels. He doesn't just like disregard his commanding officer and goes off and does his own thing. But he has a similar, but in this case, he, they save the town, and in particular, he saves the missionaries. Um, thus, and his primary motivation is he does not want to prevent the, these people that are going to hear the gospel from hearing so, and he acts even more brave than he did prior. 
is he still at this time engaged um, in his just acquired fortitude of courage? Is he somehow now, in, is he crossed over into engaging somehow in the in, um, infused uh, courage by God and that he is now, by his act of courage on the battlefield, his, he is allowing the gospel to spread further? Or could it be? It could it be that there's somehow like it's not just solely one. So just to, I'm just I think that's I think that's really really complicated for all kinds of of reasons. Uh, one of which would be that fighting well in a just war requires right intention in a way that intersects with right authority, and it's not the correct dis description of uh, not a true description of the in, of the intention of this army to allow for the spread of of the gospel or something like that and his authority is related to the actual to be going out there and soldiering is is directly related to the actual war that's being fought um so i i, I don't really the, there's so many moving parts in that example, which is a, a great one. It's hard to know where to begin, but I think what I would want to say is I, I don't see why it couldn't – it might be the case that infused courage is maybe at work in some special way in this case, but – don't hold me to it, and we'd have to get into the details a lot more. I think we can take one final question, then we're going to have to uh, conclude. Um, I, I have a question, and it's actually to, to Aquinas, so I guess it's to, to all of you. So if, if we follow the structure of, of, of that he defends of uh, faith, giving the, the principles, um, and then charity being the one that is uh, actually maintaining all of the infused virtues, and charity die well it doesn't die right because faith dies charity lives when when you fall into mortal sin when you lose the state of grace then diffused virtues should go away um, similarly and then faith dies uh, and so does hope but they remain so in in that case i could imagine a saint who most of them did have mortal sins with mary as an exception possibly joseph and maybe one or two others um, so they they explain terrible sorrows whenever they did a venial sin, and that clearly came from the infused virtues, right? The infused gratitude, being like in pain of seeing those things, infused religion, also being in pain. But if that saint, and when that saint fell to mortal sin, all of these things should go away. So it will sound like, according to Aquinas, so if, if Aquinas is right, it will sound that the saint will have more pain in committing a venial sin than a mortal sin. and. And m even more importantly, the character will change dramatically wh while, while after committing the mortal sin. And what will move that saint to go back to confession and for forgiveness? Because that's a concern for your ultimate end, which that's what the, the infused virtues are worrying about, but now they're gone. So, so what moves the saint, or any of us, to go to confession for the sake of our eternal life if there are no infused virtues? God's mercy. Yeah, but how? <laughs> His grace, actual grace. Well, I, I mean, and, and beyond that, right, um, 
faith, you, you don't, faith, dead faith and living faith for Aquinas are the same habit, right? So it's not that you stop believing, right? It's not s- that you stop holding the, the truth of the faith to be true, right? So, um, and I don't know that, I don't know what I think about all your regret having to come from infused virtue. I don't know what I think of that, right? Um, so I, but I, I think certainly God helps move you to repent. So, um. Jacob, you have the last word. Oh boy. Um, as Father said, God's mercy, and and as Professor Knobel said, um, God's actual grace. So, um, uh, a, a category that Aquinas inherits from Augustine is that of prevenient grace, because none of us move ourselves towards justification and there's a development in Aquinas's thought on this about whether we can prepare ourselves for grace and his mature position is that it's only God who prepares us for grace and he does so in two ways in the first way God prepares us for grace by conferring upon us the motion of natural desire for God um, although that only prepares us for grace materially and then um, God also prepares us for subsequent graces by giving us the graces that we need to get us ready to and to draw us towards that grace. I mean, another version of your question is why does anybody get baptized other than the fact that their parents brought them to the font? But then it's like the chicken and the egg, and how did they get to the font? And how did they get to the font, right? And anyone only gets to the baptismal font because God loves them, and God pours his grace, his prevenient actual grace, into their hearts to to enable them to commit concrete actions that draw them towards habitual grace, stable grace, sanctifying grace in the essence of their soul. And so the only reason, I mean, it's great that they were saints, you know, uh, that they ended up saints, right? It's great that they were doing well in the Christian life, but they fell into mortal sin. The only reason they got back up, it is not because they used to be phenomenal saints, It's because they fell, and God had mercy on them, and God loved them, and God poured his grace into their hearts to bring them back. It's the same reason that any of us go to baptism or confession. That concludes our session, and we look forward to having you back at another occasion uh, here at the Dominican House of Studies. Thanks for being a part of it.